I really don't think the church can force feed every historical bit of information, and nor do I think that's their job. Like the prophets and apostles, their job is to help bring us closer to Christ. They are special witnesses of him. They are to help provide spiritual nourishment. They're not history teachers, they're spiritual teachers. And when we understand that, I think it's a little easier. Welcome to the very first episode of Fair's new podcast, Me, My Shelf, and I, starring yours truly, Zach Wright, as well as my really great friends, Jennifer Roach and Sarah Allen. So to kind of launch in before we we get into today's today's topic, I kind of wanted you both to kind of introduce yourselves and then I'll I'll do a little spiel about myself and kind of talk about what we're going to launch into. Is it okay if you start, Jennifer? Yes, I'm Jennifer Roach. I've been involved with FAIR for a few years now. Um, most of my research has been on how the church responds to sexual abuse, um, but I love all areas of apologetics, so I'm excited to be here. Um, I am Sarah Allen. I've also been involved with FAIR for a couple of years now. Um, I'm a co-moderator on Reddit on the LDS sub and um, one of my other co-moderators who is going to remain nameless right now, so I don't dox him. Uh, he brought me into FAIR and um, I have been here ever since. I've been writing on the blog. I, I did a response to the CES letter. So, um, just to clarify, you did not write the CES letter. No, I, I did not write the CES letter. Like Jen keeps trying to sign it to me. No, <laughs> she wrote a seventy-part response to it, though. Yeah, well, that's just because I'm long-winded. It's fine. That is not why. <laughs> well, I'm super excited because I'm I'm kind of the I'm I'm kind of the new kid on the block in terms of yes, because because we're ancient. Yeah, uh, that's yeah. that's not what I said. <laughs> But the uh, I, I I did a podcast with Fair for a, a kind of discussing critical thinking skills in conjunction with apologetics, LDS theology, history, that sort of thing, and I I remember there there are lots of things that we kind of touched on. One of the things that I remember talking about is today's topic. Actually, it's the it's regard. It's regarding the Book of uh, Book of Mormon translation, wherein you have Joseph Smith translating the Book of Mormon by putting a seer stone in a hat. So, we have a we have a few things that we we'd like to be able to kind of talk about today because the the criticisms, as Sarah well knows from her response to the CES letter, are far and wide in terms of what they're talking about. Mm -hmm. So. One of the first things that I remember being being criticized is the use of a seer stone in regards to what the Bible says about things like divination and also using kind of local folk magic practices. So we we kind of have one specific group of people who believe in God, but have a really hard time accepting the idea that God would use like magical items, so to speak to translate ancient scripture. And I, I do have one quote on here that we'll, we'll go ahead and take a look. So consider you can consider this following commentary from an LDS writer. Quote, 
How does the Lord view magic, witchcraft, the occult, necromancy, astrology, and other deviant practices? The Son of God has been clear and decisive when it comes to witchcraft. The Book of Mormon explains that it was Jesus Christ who gave the law of Moses. The law Christ revealed to ancient Israel decrees, Thou shalt not suffer a witch to live. Exodus 22.18. It also says, A man also or woman that hath a familiar spirit or that is a wizard shall surely be put to death. They shall stone them with stones. Their blood shall be upon them. Leviticus 20.27. The prophet Mormon saw our day in vision. He compiled most of the Book of Mormon, including the portion that we are not yet worthy to receive. He produced the Book of Mormon text that will be used during the millennium. He knew principles, doctrines, revelations, events, and history that we are not yet ready or worthy to receive. What does Mormon have to say about magic and sorceries in the his abridgment. And it came to pass that there were sorceries and witchcrafts and magics, and the power of the evil one was wrought upon the face of the land, even unto the fulfilling of all the words of Abinadi and also Samuel the Lamanite, which is Mormon one nineteen. And also, for those who did not belong to their church, did indulge themselves in sorceries and in idolatry. Alma 132. Mormon associates magic with the power of the evil one, and only those not belonging to the church indulge themselves in this wickedness. The evil one is the adversary, better known as Satan. End quote. Basically, they're they're tying together this use of folk magic and seer stones, consequently, with um Satan being with Satan and demonic demonic ritual. So, okay, I, I guess there are, it's a little bit interesting. Kind of off the top of your head, are there? Um, can you see why maybe Latter Day Saints might get a little bit confused about that? Why they might immediately think that seer stones might be associated with satanism like i mm. i personally don't i don't i don't necessarily follow that line of logic like the the stuff we find in in this specific like list of quotes that this this lds writer um kind of talks about they don't mention seer stones as being the problem but i i don't know i i'm looking to you guys what do you, what do you immediately think of when people start trying to say that seer stones are demonic well from a historical perspective you can only make that statement if you are looking at a very tiny slice of history. There, There's a long history, we'll get into this in one of the episodes, of objects and physical physical objects found in nature, all kinds of other things being used um, in spiritual practices. And that has gone in and out of favor over time and been considered good and evil at different times and depending upon how it's used. This is not, Joseph Smith is not the first person who used a object from the natural world to help in spiritual understanding. I, in my episode, I hope to be able to provide some context around that. Very cool. I'm excited. The No, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, um, as since I'm going to be handling episode two, um, one of the things that we are going to be talking about is how those physical objects and um, come from God and how he infuses light into these objects, which is the the light of prophecy and some very cool stuff coming up on that. So I would just say that, you know, it, it we need to keep an open mind because, yes, Satan can use things like that. And yes, there is absolutely precedent for that. But there's also precedent for God using objects in in a way that benefits him. So that's kind of one of the goals of this podcast is to look at things from both sides and and try and figure out what exactly comes from God and what doesn't. Right. And that's that's an that's something I heard an awful lot even when I was on my mission I served in North Carolina, heart of the south, 
everyone, their mom and their dog has an opinion about the <laughs> Book of Mormon and mm-hmm. whether or not it comes from God and not mm-hmm. or, or not. And it's um a lot of non-LDS critics at the church will also often cite this as Joseph Smith being inspired by the devil to mm-hmm. write the Book of Mormon to lead people away. Um, there's another quote on here where I that we can take a look. It reads the following way. Quote, if you like ghost hunting, seances, channeling, commuting with crystal balls and Mormon seer stones, then you would probably enjoy looking for spirits. Contextually, the Bible explains that these spirits encountered wandering the earth are the outcast followers of Satan that try to deceive us. They should all be avoided. Basically, we can summarize this group of people as being those who believe in God, but don't think that God would allow Joseph to use the seer stones as a means to the end of translating the Book of Mormon. Mm-hmm. And I, the, the group that I, I believe the what we, what we call them throughout this specific podcast is that they are more fundamentalist. Not to be confused with the FLDS— it is when we talk about fundamentalism, we're referring it to more in a um, kind of a scholarly sense, wherein it's they have a very kind of literalist, strict understanding of the yep. of the biblical texts, wherein if you do further exploration into the history and the deeper exegetical meaning of the of the texts themselves, they tell a different story. But a lot of tradition kind of like leads them to come to specific conclusions about what the texts actually say. And it leads them to this conclusion that only Satan could be using the seer stones. Mm-hmm. History messes everything up, right? <laughs> like you learn the history of some of these things and all of a sudden it's not just this very, very simple, here's the plain reading of it and it's only <laughs> that. You have to, it, it, even stuff in the Bible, like never mind stuff in the history beyond that. It gets real complicated. I, I mean, we're dealing with people that are, this, these are people who lived over 4,000 years ago. Like, we, we mm-hmm. have to be able to expect that there are some differences. Mm-hmm. Well, I always say that history is messy because it is. Um, you know, you have historical accounts that conflict. You have historical accounts that, like, leave large gaps. People just kind of write, because a lot of the the accounts that we have are, like, journal entries and things. So, they're writing things that they know about. But they aren't providing the context for the rest of us who are looking at it 100 years later because they don't need to because they know what they're talking about. And, every, so. and all their readers know what they're talking about. Exactly. Well, especially if their readers is just their private journal, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, so history is, is uh, there's always a lot of speculation involved, there's always a lot of guesswork. And so that is one of the reasons why I, I think there is a tendency to distrust historians. Um, that is something we will be discussing later as well. I think you'll be talking about that, right? Yes. Yeah, I will. <laughs> but uh, overall, I think that, you know, we just have to go into an understanding that we're looking at things from a long time later. So, our expectation of the way that things should be is not going to be the same as what their expectation was living in that moment. So, we have to keep that in mind. No, I, I think that's that's very insightful, and that's um, that actually leads really well into kind of this next kind of vein because we talked about kind of one vein of criticism, mm-hmm. but there are a couple of different ways to look at the historical data, and so another kind of a vein of criticism that that we're kind of going to discuss today is that they they seem to, uh, you have some critics that have reservations about 
how folk magic during the time of Joseph Smith seemed to be guiding a lot of, or seemed to have some similarities to, um, but, but basically it, it talks a little bit about how Joseph Smith was just exclusively pulling from folk magic practices that were found during his time in, in order to basically fabricate the book of Mormon. And so it's, there, there are a couple of other quotes that I have right here. So basically they, they try to paint him as being exclusively a product of his time. Mm -hmm. If there is a God, he certainly wasn't involved and he's, you know, it, it, this is just kind of made up folk magic 18, uh, 1800s nonsense. Well, I would say Jennifer's episode three is going to be all about that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we're going to look at the the historical record from about 500 AD all the way up through Joseph Smith's time and ask the question, why would mm -hmm. something like putting a seer stone in a hat make sense in his context? Like The first time I heard about that, I, I was a little freaked out. Like, I'm an adult convert. I joined the church five years ago. Um, I was like, wait, what? Like, it's a crazy sounding thing. Mm -hmm. And you would think if it didn't have a, a broader context in Joseph Smith's time, everyone around him would have been like, what are you doing, buddy? <laughs> um, and, and when you understand how all the pieces fits together, it actually makes perfect sense. Mm -hmm. um, to kind of explore this a little bit more, though, there are a couple of other, there are a couple of other quotes here. And there's one from the Institute of Religious Research. Quote, The reason why Joseph tried to cover up his years of treasure hunting is not hard to discern. This was the original context in which Joseph's supposed discovery of the gold plates took place. In the folklore of Joseph's early American culture, buried treasure was commonly guarded by spirits, typically either demons or the ghosts of the departed, and thus divination instruments such as divining rods or seer stones were required to locate the treasure. According to Joseph, the gold plates were buried in the ground and guarded by a supernatural being, later identified as the angel Moroni, who refused to allow Joseph to take the plates until various conditions were met. Thus, the story of the finding of the Book of Mormon is a story of buried treasure, one that some LDS scholars have admitted fit comfortably into the folklore beliefs accepted by the Smiths and their associates. Close quote. Quote, Numerous foundational Mormon families actively believed in apparitions, divining rods, talismans, seer stones, planetary superstitions, lunar cycles, astrology, and enchantments. The Smith family's involvement in ritual magic is now widely acknowledged by the LDS Church. Smith family descendants eventually donated and displayed folk magic items, including amulets, talismans, parchments, daggers, and even magical canes and handkerchiefs. While it's easy to acknowledge and dismiss these beliefs as non-doctrinal, they become problematic when a careful examination of Mormonism reveals that there is no extricating these folk beliefs from the visions of Joseph Smith, his translations, and much of the text of the Book of Mormon, end quote. So to that, I would just point out um, there is that source where Joseph says, you know, they asked, was Joseph Smith a treasure digger? And he goes, yeah, but he only made $14 a month from it. So he admitted to it. It's not like he was trying to hide it. The, the phrase treasure digger, how else are you going to find a silver mine except for to dig for it, mm. right? Like the phrase itself is kind of pejorative. Well, and everybody, I mean, every culture in the world looks for lost treasure. Like, mm -hmm. I mean, there are books, like famous books of literature and famous movies. And mm -hmm. I mean, the Goonies we all grew up with, they were looking <laughs> for treasure. 
I did not grow up with the Goonies. Stop telling us how old we are. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. I just I, you're making references and I don't understand them. Our I'm audience sorry. will get it. Okay. <laughs> Wait. Okay. Are you saying that you've never seen the Goonies? I don't think I've ever watched the Goonies oh, from beginning to children. end. I'm, I'm, okay. Back sorry. on track. Sorry. Back on track. <laughs> okay. I'm totally okay. focused. Totally focused. But sorry. We're, we're talking about local folk magic practices. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And but that kind of prompts questions. Then how is Joseph using the seer stones? And that's going to be something that. I'm going to be talking about mm-hmm. later. Um, there are lots of really interesting uh, firsthand and secondhand accounts that talk a little bit about how um, people observed how Joseph Smith would put the rock in the hat, kind of like the the mechanism of translation, so to speak. And that that's going to be um, that's even that's a little bit controversial though, because you have some writers who say that the Joseph didn't actually use the seer stone, he only used the Urim and Thummim. Quote, there is no indication or implication that Joseph, Oliver, or anyone else referred to the seer stones or peep stones as the Urim and Thummim, or vice versa. All contemporary accounts refer to the objects Moroni put in the stone box as the Urim and Thummim, the spectacles, or the Nephite interpreters. Closed quote. Oh, we'll get into we'll, that. We'll get into that. <laughs> yes, yes. Because yeah. there's um there's there's an interesting history behind that specifically, mm-hmm. and kind of like how those terms eventually became conflated, and kind of like like the timing of using both the Nephite interpreters of the Urim and Thummim, and then also Joseph Smith using this his own mm-hmm. seer stone or seer stones plural. And that is also something that I'm going to be talking to Garrett Jerkmott about as well. So that leads to kind of the next and final part of criticisms that that can often be shared by both of those groups, those who are a little bit more fundamentalist in their beliefs, and those who tend to at least lean a little bit more um, ultra-historical, somewhat agnostic about whether or not God exists or not. Both of them can can sometimes agree on the idea that the church possibly, or they'll they'll often claim that the church hid this information from its members, Mm -hmm. that it's embarrassing, therefore the church just wanted to avoid it or ignore it or deny it, and that the church essentially lied to its membership for decades, if, for, for a long, long time, uh, about the true nature behind how Joseph was actually able to translate the Book of Mormon. And so, uh, one, there, a couple of quotes here, we'll start with one. Quote, In 2015, the LDS Church removed what it claimed to be Smith's seer stone from a vault and allowed it to be photographed. That act was the first in over a century where LDS openly admitted that its founding prophet used a seer stone to create the Book of Mormon. The complaint states, it continues, Nevertheless, to this day, neither the actual seer stone nor a photo of it has been referenced or shown in general conference or upon information and belief to those attending weekly services in wards or branches. Close quote. One critic states that the church was, quote, purposely hiding for decades the seer stone's role in the creation of the Book of Mormon, teaching a false narrative of the direct translation from gold plates, end quote. Another one actually comes from the CES letter. You wouldn't know anything. Are, about I know. That. Why, why are you looking at me when you talk about that? I did not um, write it. Okay. I, did, I, I know you didn't write it, but um, so basically, he he basically says that the church finally admits the idea that Joseph Smith used a seer stone only in 2013 in the Gospel Topics essay. 
The CES letter implies that these were previously hidden when it reads, quote, These facts are now officially confirmed in the church's December 2013 Book of Mormon translation essay. The church later admitted these facts in its October 2015 Enzyme, where they include a photograph of the actual rock that Joseph Smith used to place in his hat for the Book of Mormon translation. Additional photos of the rock can be viewed on LDS.org. In June 2016, President Dieter F. Uchtdorf posted on his Facebook page comparing the seer stone in the hat, Book of Mormon Translation, to his iPhone. Fair Mormon posted new Book of Mormon Translation artwork showing Joseph Smith's face in a hat. And, and, and this, they're, they're very thoroughly implying that they're saying this now, but they didn't say this before. Well, they are wrong. And we'll, we'll talk about that in a later episode, too. <laughs> It, to me, it feels like I didn't get taught this in third grade primary, so therefore it got hid from me. Instead yeah. of, there are many more layers to explore as you become an adult. You don't get taught everything in primary. No. Well, and also, every prophet since well before we were all born has told us, do your own studying outside of church. <laughs> because you cannot cover everything in like two hours a week, three hours a week. You just can't. So you have to do some of your own reading on the side. And all of this stuff has been mentioned right from the very beginning. If, if the church was trying to hide that, they did a really bad job. They did. And I guess my, my question immediately comes to you. Okay, so if you feel like the church hid it from you, when would you expect to have the church basically force feed that? Would you expect it to be taught in every single sacrament meeting? Would you expect it to be, would you expect it to be, I don't know, mentioned in general conference? I, it doesn't seem very specific. And I, there's a part of me that I, I don't mean to be rude, but I, I really don't think the church can force feed every historical bit of information. No. And nor do I think that's their job. Like the prophets and apostles, their job is to help bring us closer to Christ. They're, they're special witnesses of him. They're to help provide spiritual nourishment, that sort, that sort of thing. It's not They're not history teachers, mm -hmm. they're spiritual teachers. And when we understand that, I think it's a little easier. But we, we, it, we, it kind of leads to this interesting dichotomy because on one hand, we have some critics saying that God exists, but the Book of Mormon is not inspired. And we have another vein that is more apt to say, Joseph Smith just pulled this from his surroundings. There's no reason to assume that God exists. Mm -hmm. And both of those are kind of really interesting criticisms that have been kind of put forth, especially over the past few decades. And yet they are fundamentally incompatible with each other. Mm -hmm. And I just find that uh, that's a little funny to me because I, I, I'm not sure what to, what to think about that specifically. I, I, I hesitate to say that it's, it's inconsistent, but it, it, is, it does go to show that there have been a variety of different criticisms from, a, from across time. Mm -hmm. And I, I guess it it prompts several questions that we need to try to explore throughout this series. So uh, the first question is, does the Bible teach against the use of objects to harness God's power? Absolutely not. <laughs> no. Of course it does not. The Bible is full of God using things, mm -hmm. objects found in nature to help guide his people. Moses holds yes. up his staff. Look at the staff and you will mm -hmm. be saved. That's using a physical object. What's the staff made out of? Wood, probably? Yeah. Like, 
No, yeah, the, I'm going to spend probably half of the next episode talking all about that because mm-hmm. that you have to understand that you know the Lord does love His patterns, and the Bible is full of that exact same pattern. The one of the difficulties is you can point out examples of here is where a person has taken an object and used it in evil ways. Yeah, of course you can. Obviously, yeah. But just because someone has misused a concept doesn't mean that concept should have no use. Like misuse doesn't equal no use. Mm. It, people do evil things with all all kinds of things. You can go on the internet for good or for evil. <laughs> true. Very true. Right? So you can use an object for good or for evil, and the Bible is full of stories and examples of God using objects to speak to his people. Well, and people have used the Bible for good and evil. I mean, look Mm -hmm. at like the witch trials or, um, yeah, or the Inquisition, or, Mm -hmm. I mean, people do all kinds of horrible things with religion, and that doesn't mean that all religion is untrue. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that that actually leads to another really kind of important question that we need to answer. We need to talk a little bit about how um, seer stones were viewed and like this, this idea of um, like God using objects was viewed after the Bible. Mm-hmm. And, and that's episode three. That's yes. episode three. Yeah. We'll talk about yeah, all of this is coming. <laughs> yeah. R- roughly from the fall of Rome up until Joseph Smith's day, um, using objects of spirituality goes in and out of favor. It's looked at different ways. Sometimes it's seen as incredibly evil and sometimes it's seen as very, very mm-hmm. good. Um, and a lot of it has to do with what's the politics going on in the day, <laughs> who's vying for power. Very little of it has to do with, are we actually looking at the patterns that that God has laid down for us. Hmm. Yeah, no, that's that's very true. Um, and of course, additionally, we we have to cover the mechanisms of translation, like how Joseph used the seer stone, when did he use it, what's the relationship between the Urim and Thummim mm. and the seer stones, and we, we we have to talk a little bit about kind of those the sources we have on that. Mm-hmm. Lots of great stuff, and I'm going to be in charge of that one. So I'm actually very excited about how that's going to turn out. Um, yeah, that'll be fun. It will be fun. Yeah, I um, yeah, just all good things. And of course, we have um, the one we kind of recently talked about. Did the church hide the fact mm-hmm. that Joseph Smith used a seer stone? And the final question is. What does this mean for being able to keep faith in the Book of Mormon? Does the yes. seer stone preclude any chance of us being able to believe that the Book of Mormon was inspired? Or do we just have to chalk this all up to just being crazy history stuff? Mm. Because we um weren't none none of us are historians. Correct. Right. None of us are none of us have any specific field of training. Um, I mean I mean Jennifer, you're you you were an Anglican minister, so you have a little bit. I have a master in divinity, but it's not a history degree. Yeah, and it's it's something that we all kind of need to talk. It, it's mm-hmm. something that's worth talking about because what really it boils down to is we need to figure out how God interacts with us mm-hmm. in our day, how He interacted with them in their day, and if we can do that, we might be able to come to come to some kind of agreement about how we can maintain faith in the Book of Mormon mm-hmm. and also understand kind of how how God can work through things that may seem unconventional to eventually bring about something 
miraculous and wonderful. It reminds me of what happens immediately after Jesus Christ is resurrected. It's the women who first learn this message. They run to the apostles mm-hmm. to tell them women are have all kinds of credibility problems in that era. Um, and so you got to step back yeah. and think, like, like why, why did God arrange it so that these women knew? If you wanted a super credible story, it would have been someone standing there with a video camera, right? It would have happened in a different era. It would have happened with, with um, witnesses who were more reliable than, like, just women. Um, but it doesn't happen that way. He uses... This sort of unexpected source, if you were trying to put together a fake story of the resurrection, you wouldn't have women as the witnesses Mm. of it, right? You would have a very, very reliable person. So if we were trying to put together a fake story about how the Book of Mormon came to be, it would not be this. Well, and like Samuel, I mean, if you were calling in a new prophet, you're going to call a child. Right. You know, so da- I mean, David is the youngest brother. Like, there's so yeah. many examples of if if reliability, if being able to like absolutely look back and have this be a very clean story. If that was the goal, like all the scripture stories would have been written differently. They mm-hmm. just would have. And so, of course, we have to grapple with concepts like this in yeah. the history of our church and and even in modern times. Just because it seems unusual doesn't mean God didn't use it. Well said. And I think that's kind of a that's that's kind of a good place to wrap up. So this is kind of our introduction to our new series, the Me, My Shelf, and I, wherein our first generalized topic is us going to be answering every single one of those questions. Does the Bible teach against the use of objects to harness God's power? How are seer stones or magical objects viewed after the Bible was written? Uh, how did Joseph Smith translate the Book of Mormon? Did the church hide the fact that Joseph had a seer stone? And what does this mean for us being able to keep faith in the Book of Mormon? So stay tuned. We've got a lot to talk about, and we'd love for you to be able to kind of learn with us, and we can have a little fun along the way, hopefully. And I'm sure it'll be a great experience. So stay tuned. Be sure to subscribe to Fair's channel, obviously, so that you can keep listening to and, you know, Taking a look and follow us on our quest to figure out more about Joseph Smith's use of the seer stone.